Welcome everyone to Obsessed and So Obscure, a Matt Berry music podcast. I'm Tara, and as usual, I'm joined by the lovely Courtney. Hello. And Jesse. Hi. Today we'll be discussing and breaking down the Milkbone album, and we thought who better to help us with this than Milkbone and Maypole's drummer, James Sedge. Welcome, James. Hello. Good afternoon. So as you guys might remember, James has contributed to the show previously via Q&A, but today he is live and in person via Zoom, and we are so excited <laughs> that he's here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. So as... Tara mentioned today we're going to talk about Milkbone. Milkbone is the progtastic collaboration between James Sedge, Matt Berry, and Phil Scrag. It was released on December 20th, 2021, initially only on very limited edition translucent red vinyl. Only 200 copies were released, and there is a runout error, which makes them even more special. Side A contains the side B info and vice versa. The album was later released on CD and digital streaming as of March of 2022. As we mentioned, the musicians on Milkbone are Phil Scrag on keyboards, bass, and guitar, Matt Berry on keyboards and guitar, James Sedge on drums. And then additionally, Graham Mann plays trombone, and he also does some percussion on tracks two, eight, and nine, which we'll talk about. And Cecilia Fage also provides some vocal sampling, which we'll also talk about. And then the cover art was painted by Matt Berry, which we've talked about in previous episodes, which will be familiar to anybody who's seen Toast of London. There was not a whole lot of press around Milkbone, but James, you did give an interview to Louder a music blog on November 11th, 2021. But Louder said, having previously worked together in Mapberry and the Maypoles, the seeds of the idea of a group coming together on the band's tour bus, where they shared their mutual admiration for 1970s era progressive and electronic music. James, you said, we decided to make an instrumental album that channeled and referenced our shared love of Canterbury era Prague, mixed with European electronica, electric period Miles Davis, as well as the love of the instruments, both acoustic and electric, associated with those genres. We were aspiring to get some of the atmosphere and wonkiness of the recordings of that era, rather than the sterile production you occasionally encounter in contemporary production. We all enjoy the sound of real instruments playing, and with sequence synths, the perfection of the sequencer with the imperfection of live drums and bass. We left in all the quirky feel things, so it wouldn't sound overproduced and polished. So not- I said that, did I? Well. You, you did. That was quite so, good. I'm impressed with myself. That was really fantastic. I must have had help with that. <laughs> we have a few more quotes too, so you're going to hear more of your own voice. <laughs> but I did want to ask, prog is kind of a newish genre for most of us. Actually, listening to Matt's music and his work with the Maples really helped us to explore prog music. What tracks and albums would you suggest for someone just getting into prog? And who are some of your favorite prog bands? Oh, yeah, this is a thorny issue amongst <laughs> prog fans. You know, they're, they're quite unforgiving. We um, don't shy away from controversy here. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful not to scare the horses here. You know, right? Yeah, because people hold very strong, strongly held beliefs about what's right and what's wrong and what's prog even. You know, there are whole debates whether certain albums are prog enough. Um, but I think um, Phil and I grew up 
in the 70s. So we grew up with early Genesis, Pink Floyd, um, and the Canterbury bands. So we live in Kent. So Phil's in London now, but he was actually uh, born quite close to where I am now um, in Sevenoaks. And um, just about 30 miles from here is Canterbury. And there was this whole scene in the late 60s and 70s with some really creative musicians who were really quirky, unusual. So um, let me think. We've got bands like National Health, Gong, um, Steve Hillage. Um, hang on, I think I made a list somewhere. Who else have <laughs> I got? Soft Machine. I know Matt particularly likes Henry Cow because uh, he messaged me to say, can you make it sound like Henry Cow? And I listened to Henry <laughs> Cow and thought, oh, that's really difficult. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, that kind of 70s uh, Canterbury, late 60s thing, Caravan is another band you should listen to. Okay. It's certainly quirky. Um, some of the lyrics are a bit based on mythology. A lot of them are public school boys. You know, they're classically trained people that rebelled. You know, they found drugs. They wanted to do something else and rebel against the system. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, there's a big scene locally here of that sort of thing um and, and me and phil just always talks about it and so when we got the gig with matt sitting on the tour bus it was just a delight because like, do you like mike oldfield yes oh great you know because i think <laughs> matt was used to people saying who and, <laughs> and then of course you know we, we just spark off something and when we started working on matt's stuff it wasn't particularly progressive it was more folky really the first one i did was um kill the wolf mm -hmm. and it was see more... it behind you there oh yes yes i was looking <laughs> through my stuff to remind me um, i was thinking oh i've got this box set and i looked it up and i must sell it no i must not sell it yeah. <laughs> you will get a lot of money for that it was quite expensive i was thinking wow okay so yeah that was our kind of prog um beginnings so you know when we did matt's thing there were always those influences so in the studio matt might say suggest something like play it like Henry Cow. Or I remember him once saying, can you play this song like um, the drummer for Kate Bush on the first album? And I remember thinking, wow, okay. Luckily though, I know that album really well. So okay. it's a really good way of communicating amongst musicians because how on earth would you describe that to another musician? True. I don't think you have the vocabulary to do it actually. But as soon as you can say, make it more like this musician, mm -hmm. everything opens up. So we got on really well recording that way. Um, so the Milkbone album was inevitable. How Let's far go. back do these conversations stretch? How long has this album been kind of percolating? Oh, well, the, the album was really kind of accidental. Um, the conversations about the band started in 2010, really, on the first tour bus, where Andy Vickery got me into the band. And then suddenly I thought, oh, this is home. This is great, you know, it's um, really nice people, great music, and Matt was very entertaining to be on tour with. Um, I'm sure. Uh, he was, uh, I remember, this is pre-toast, I remember him doing the toast voice a lot as we just <laughs> drive along the motorway. And I didn't realise that he was actually practising. So <laughs> he'd read out the road signs. <laughs> oh my God. And it was immediately hilarious. So we were all just creased up laughing as he would just read things out randomly in the voice. <laughs> You're the test audience. Course, yeah. <clears throat> we didn't know, right. you know what was going to happen with, with that. So, um, yeah, so yeah, we, we started chatting about these sort of bands and 
I love of Jean-Michel Jarre and synthesizers and it all kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? That, you know, Jean-Michel Jarre is a very kind of, back in the 70s, it was very hands-on. It wasn't just all computerized because it couldn't be there. Right. So there's lots of little glitchy things and imperfections. And that's what we all seem to like. You know, Matt really doesn't like things too perfect. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting to to hear what his notes are for you too, because, you know, not reading music, not writing music, obviously not really drumming much. It's interesting to see how he relayed notes to you of what he wanted. That's always something that we are kind of like, well, how does he do that exactly? So that's interesting to say, okay, this is kind of the sound that I'm going for. Can you make it sound like this? Yeah, no, I got some demos over the years. Kill the Wolf, there were demos where mm -hmm. it was kind of roughly programmed drums. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes Matt played some drums, I think. And, uh, you know, I think he's a frustrated drummer. But um, <laughs> it's the one thing that he hasn't got time to get good enough, you know, everything else he can do. Right. Um, you know, I always encouraged him as much as I could. Like, well, keep going, keep practicing, thinking I'm going to do myself out of a job here. Um, <laughs> That's all right. I don't mind. Um, now, because of COVID restrictions, because of when this album was recorded, it was recorded remotely with the three of you file sharing from your respective studios. You told Louder, the music came together surprisingly quickly with ideas flowing between the three of us right from the start. There was a lot of freedom to improvise and change direction. Tracks would be sent back and forth with ideas added or subtracted. Occasionally, the contribution of one of us would be a complete surprise and take the music in a completely new direction. So how did you build off each other's ideas while you were recording separately? Yeah, it was an interesting way of doing it because obviously we had to do it that way, but we'd never record. I mean, I mean most of the music world hadn't done that before. And um, there were unintended or unexpected consequences of recording separately where you haven't got them in your ear suggesting things, but then you haven't got them in your ear kind of guiding you in a way that you may not want to go. So I, I, I had complete freedom really i would get um a rough recording i can play you some actually um That'd be great and then i could play whatever i i felt and then i didn't have the fear of in the studio musicians get terrible fear of failure terrible you know like the red light goes on so to speak recording light and people tense up and i, t I tell you what we all play it safe in the studio because you don't want to spend the time trying something ridiculous and everyone what do you do that for it's like i don't know i just thought i could try i never did it so oh, yeah. i was on my own and it was weird it was a very weird atmosphere because my town was empty and i remember the first day walking through the town and on the shops are boarded up and it's like oh are we i, I remember thinking are we all going to die you know it was pretty yeah. heavy and i think we've all got a collective amnesia now right i've spoken to a number of people where they did that really happen it was yeah. so surreal it really was. The it was and for me i've got a dodgy immune system so i actually got a letter from our government and it said do not leave your house under any circumstances do not go into the garden you may open a window if no one is nearby wow and that oh was God. signed matt hancock one of our favorite politicians. <laughs> and it was a bit of a shock for me because, you know, two weeks earlier, I'd been out on the road playing gigs and doing stuff. And I get yeah. this letter saying, you might die if you actually meet anyone. So that was a bit of a scare. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Yeah. I walked down to my music school that I run with my partner, Julie, and it's just strange. It was like the Marie Celeste. I went in and there were half drunk cups of coffee in the rooms and just no one around. And 
I thought, well, I shouldn't leave my house, but I'm going to. I'm going to go in here and start playing some drums because there's a studio here that I've built and I've never really used. Mm -hmm. I had to figure out how to use the studio. So that was the first couple of weeks thinking, how does anything work? Because there was no one there to help me. Like normal, there's normally an engineer there. And how do I get this to work? You know, just do that. But I'm on my own. And um, yeah, I remember thinking this might be the last thing I ever do. So I'm going to make it really good. I, I, I I was determined not to be depressed. I just thought I'm going to go the other way. And it brought out a wave of creativity where I thought, right, if I'm going to go, I'm going to leave this and it's going to be good. Um, That's so powerful. It really is. It really was quite something at the time where every day I went in, I felt like I was risking myself just leaving the house. So I would kind of scuttle down the road, crossing the road if anyone was nearby and they would cross the road awkwardly. And then, you know, we would, I'd find my way into the studio. Right. Okay. The, um, the heating had failed and so oh. I was sitting there it was it was really cold I was playing in gloves and um, I was thinking right, come on come on play hard get warm and then Matt and, and Phil started working on these demos and it was all completely by accident you know Phil said oh we might be doing I might be doing something with Matt I said right I want to be involved I'll play drums let me play drums and they said well look, have this first track um I think our first track we did was Canterbury how long did you have the studio set up and not using it about six years so oh, everyone yeah. used it and I always had help so I did I did a few things with people but I'm so I was so busy running a music school doing gigs I, I was really really busy and so there's always someone there to help but if you ever look into a recording studio you'll see a lot of functions a lot of switches a lot of things to plug in and um it was I, you know head in my hands i have to make this work I had recorded there before um i did a couple of tracks from that on the tv themes album from there wow. uh, i did the rainbow and the liver birds track <laughs> yeah Which, and I don't know how I did it. I mean, I think I had help. I had Phil on the phone going, plug this in here, you know. <laughs> okay. And there's Matt saying, I need it by tonight, six o'clock. Like, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Got to get no it pressure. Done. Got to get it done. So I covered the drum kit in tea towels, kind of 1970s Ringo style. <laughs> I wanted. And uh, I managed to record them, but I'd never done it on my own. And there's just me in a room thinking, how do I make this work? So um, it was weird. In a, It's a positive thing, really. It's taught me how to do it. Yeah. Um, I took control back. A lot of people had positivity from a really bad situation. And it sounds like that's something positive that happened to you. You, you finally learned yeah. the stuff. You're self-sufficient well, now with it. Most of my life, you know, I, I gave up. I had to give up teaching, I had to give up gigging, I had to give up going out anywhere. And for me, it actually lasted three years because of my immune system not being particularly great. When everyone else started coming out again, I get more advice saying, aha, but if you go out, you still might die. Terrifying. So I've done three years of it and I thought, well, I need to come out of this same. And I've done a lot of music and it's the best music I've ever done. Good. So I'm thinking, well, okay, good. I may be slightly frazzled, slightly insane now. I've played on some really great music and contributed to some really fantastic albums and worked with some great musicians. So um, it's not all bad. No, no, it's not. Yeah, that's the thing that's so weird about it is that it's not all bad. 
So I'm glad that something positive came out of it for you. I'm glad that we got this resulting album and you didn't hold back. That's amazing. You mentioned briefly that there might be some additional Milkbone happening, possibly. Yes, it's um, it's happening now. Um, Yay. I've got a track that I'm working on from Phil so far. Matt has been involved in mixing another song that we've done, or which I'm really excited by. It sounds really good. I love what Matt's done. Really Excellent. creative. And I've been recording an outro to a song endlessly yesterday. I've got so many versions. <laughs> it's one of these songs that is very ambient at the, at the end, and you have to play something, but it mustn't get in the way, but it's still got to move things along. Mm -hmm. You've got to say something. That's the hardest thing to play. Yeah, I would imagine with an all instrumental song. You've got room to stretch out on an instrumental song when there's only three of you. Mm -hmm. See, I, I love. I'm I'm more of a song drummer normally. I love playing great songs. That's why it's been nice working with Matt because his songs are so interesting, and I love working with vocalists. But this is a whole different thing, instrumental music, because you've got to bring something. You can't. I'm supporting the voice normally. How is this tasteful? Is it in the pocket? Is it? all these things now it, that's all gone what can i provide to create excitement or an atmosphere or i love the the challenge of both things and milkbone is so good for that yes it really is and um i'm gonna ask you about that more when we get to the deep state too because oh yes yes i've noticed some of that in there as well <laughs> so yes there is some milkbone happening new milkbone is is there is there now. is and I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here puzzling through it at the moment trying to get something good enough to send back to matt and phil because you've got to send something good to these guys. <laughs> yeah, I would and imagine so. Yeah, tell well, them we said hello. Yeah, there's more pressure now because uh, we've got to match what we did before as well and maybe try to top it. And so there's some really good stuff. Phil sent me a folder of ideas. So yes, we're, um, but it could be a while. You know, this, this could take many months, not because well, yeah. we're slow. It's just so much material to go through. And right. I've been working on this 60 seconds of music now for two weeks. Oh, wow. Oh my um, God. Find the right thing. Yeah. And it's really challenging in a good way. You know, so for me now, I, I can listen to it today and think, I know what, I've missed something. Then I've got to go back down to the studio, do it again, bring it back <laughs> here, sit here. And then, because I can't seem to do it in the studio, I need to be away where I'm not playing and listen to it in a different environment. And then I can hear it properly. Oh, okay. Um, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's just my thing. I don't think right. everyone else does that. But no, when you're playing drums, it's quite a challenge because, you know, I, I, I envy you know phil playing bass for instance because he can sit there and he's right next to his computer and he can play bass and listen back and everything is a with drums right I've got 16 mics and you know it's all got to be mixed down and then you know it, everything has to be eq'd because drums sound terrible in a recording until you've really worked on them because you've got to cut out all the frequencies of the room and everything i've been learning quite a lot about doing this so yeah it's quite a challenge to produce yourself on drums i can see why a lot of people don't do it interesting i, I enjoy yeah. the challenge well very interesting good to um hear that milkbone is in progress oh yes it's crazy to think that we're talking to you about this milkbone while you're working on volume two or whatever it'll be called uh <laughs> that's really exciting so we'll look back <laughs> Yeah. so should we jump into our track by track breakdown let's yes. do it 
All right. Okay. Track number one is Canterbury. It starts off with like a heartbeat type rhythm and it goes into a building repetitive melody before a climactic opening. I think it's a really good intro song because it sort of hints at everything that'll be highlighted throughout the album. And even though like the last minute 15, there's a really good mellow jazz vibe that you'll hear that same jazziness later on as well. You said that Canterbury might be the first track that you recorded? I think it was actually. Um, Phil sent me a um, demo. Let's see if I can find it here. I really stuck, this is what I find interesting actually, because I haven't heard this in a couple of years. I stuck really close to Phil's initial idea. Sometimes I want to change it and no, I want to do my thing, but Phil really came up with something nice and I thought I'm going to really hang in there with this so this is the demo and you, you might be mistaken you might think it's the original version but let's play a little bit So can you hear that the, there's programming there and it's a bit clunky, you know, Phil obviously didn't want to spend a, a great deal of time knowing that I would come in and replace it, but it gave me a framework to listen to, to think, oh, okay, yeah, that, that would really work well. So this would be, and then this is what I did. I left a bit more space. Mm-hmm. So what I did, yeah. I thought I'd leave the, the, the intro with some big crashes and, mm -hmm. and some big dramatic fills, quite slow. You don't want anything too fast, but you could hear that Phil really gave me the framework yeah. Of, what, yeah. of what to play. And I was really happy to, to stick to that. And then on the outro, the whole thing gets really bouncy with the trombone coming in. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just wanted to really accentuate the feel of the bounce. And even though it's quite progressive, you know, people sometimes think progressive means a lot of notes. It doesn't really. It's just a kind of, it's an attitude as much as anything. You know, I wanted it to, to just work as a piece of music and not imprint myself too much on the first track. Yeah. So uh, that was cancelled. That's incredible that that was a demo. It really is so complete sounding. But yeah, yeah. and then the little, the things that you added to it really. Which... Yeah, the, the final version sounds a lot warmer to me. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned that the original was a drum machine. Like you definitely hear that kind of human warmth, sort of like you discussed in that interview, just that slight bit of, I don't want to say imperfect because technically yeah. it's virtuosic, but it's not as mechanical. Yeah, and a, a lot of modern music is played on the grid. Uh, uh, so, you know, there will be a grid of notes on on your um, recording software. So, you know, I'm looking at one now, actually, and I can see all the lines that can be 16th notes, 8th notes, 32nd notes, lots of lines. And what happens in modern productions is that you can quantize real audio now. You never used to be able to do this. You could only quantize digital music, but now 
my drums can be quantized. So you just press a button and then everything goes zoop, and it's exactly perfect. And that sounds to me and to Matt and to Phil dreadful. And that's the problem I have with some modern music where I just kind of go to sleep because there's never going to be a moment where I think, oh, that was a good bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When the bass player came in a bit, you know, I I was listening to an example, right? I was listening to The Faces do Stay With Me. It came up on my feed. I listened to it. The drummer, Kenny Jones, goes to the outro a whole four bars early. Oh, God. And it's a big time change. Goes from half time to double time. And they just left it because it sounded really anarchic. So the drummer just kicks in and they all thought, whoa, okay, now. (laughs) I love that. I love that. That's the wonkiness of it, but that's what makes it interesting to your ear. It's very dangerous to, you know, for us, because we, it's very hard to let it go. You know, for instance, someone like Tom Waits, his stuff from Swordfish Trombones and Rain Dogs era is really wonky. Yes. It's over the place. It's out of tune. It's out of time. It sounds like genius. But yes. So how does he make that? You know, if I play out of time, I sound like a bad player. But Tom <laughs> plays out of time. It sounds like, oh, yeah, he really means to play out of time. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. So but that's what we tried to work on on this. So stuff was not done to the grid. So if you were to put my drum fills up on the grid, you would see that they are either side of it all the way. And then you have to think what's acceptable? Is this moving in the right way? And so much stuff is not done like that now. But I think that's why people have, you get more of an emotional response to it. If you can hear humans playing. I agree a hundred percent. And I'm sure recording remotely like you did probably just enhance that because I would imagine there were times that you were just a little bit out of sync. And oh yeah, yeah. There's there's a few few versions where I listened back yesterday, thinking, "Wow, I can see why I didn't send them that one." <laughs> that, was, um, that was all. But what you do, it's a bit like sculpting, where you know, like the first few chisel marks are not going to be the finished thing. You've got to find what you want. And so I can sometimes, like what I've been recording yesterday for Milkbone Two, there's twenty versions of something, and each one just moves on into another area. Ah, yes, that will work. That fits better with that as phil does a fantastic bass solo really beautiful playing and i'm just trying to catch the end of some of the notes but i needed to make all the mistakes mm-hmm. but only i probably need to hear them because they're not really mistakes it's just you got to find it you find yeah. the, the truth of the track and um so canterbury was perhaps an easier one really because i just knew what to play on that one there was two or three takes and there's like bang there you go Got it. Yeah. I love no, it's it a good place happens. to start. Definitely. <laughs> Something I wrote in my notes listening to this was it feels like an overture. It's kind of a statement of purpose, which yeah. Yeah. is something I've mentioned over and over as we've done these episodes in Max Music. There's always this starting track that just feels like, yeah, like an overture for what's to come, which totally makes sense given his mm-hmm. love of like Jesus Christ Superstar. And, yeah, yeah. We yeah. always did an intro for, I was just, um, it's so weird, you know, talking to you today and literally it's, it's like this appeared out of nowhere as a pile of papers and just sticking out. I recognized this handwriting and I thought, oh, it's a set list. from, oh. um, <laughs> And we always have this, um, 
the witch intro so this would be um about 2014 tour and so we always did an overture on every tour so we yeah. would construct elements of all the songs in the rehearsal studio and then everyone would get some sort of exposure to the song in advance and then when the song happens it feels like an old friend coming back so, oh yeah i've heard that because most people didn't know Matt's material back here. You know, we were playing small venues. We were playing to probably 300 seaters. And most people thought that they were going to see a comedy show. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, that was a real challenge. You know, Matt was was funny with with the audience, but not overly funny. You know, it, it's not jokes. So yeah. the, I think the, um, the overture was a really good idea to introduce them. And it was amazing watching their faces because these overtures were really complex and <laughs> interesting and they would just stand there looking at us <laughs> this wasn't what i was expecting <laughs> i like, like it Garth Marenghi, you know right. thinking, yeah. what is going on <laughs> um, so yeah so it's a good point about canterbury i i think it does it had to go first mm -hmm. there's nowhere else on the album it could go no yeah. strange yeah. sometimes it is, you move things around and... yeah it is strange and it's also a good it's a good lesson that tracks listings are set by the artist for a reason like yes. we're used to listening to things in shuffle so often now because it's so easy yeah. but you kind of lose something sometimes not always but in an album like this and in an instrumental album you definitely can and this would be yeah. a good reason it's very subtly an overture but it sets you up, doesn't it, for it the rest really of does. the album? Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, yeah, I, I often say to my students about their listening habits and listening to whole albums. It, it's so it's so hard to not skip because yeah. we all make our minds up so quickly, me included. But I try not to because the stuff I, I remember. For instance, I remember buying when I was about twelve. Someone said you've got to buy Dark Side of the Moon. It's the best album ever. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, all right, I will go and buy it. And I saved up bought the record as it was then. I didn't like it. I sat at home thinking, well, I'd been listening to ELO and ABBA, um, which I still like. But <laughs> Nothing wrong with me. As well you should, right? Yeah. This is the first step somewhere else, perhaps, you know. And I sat there and thought, oh, I've spent three ninety nine on this. I don't really like it. So the next day I thought, I'll play again, you know. By the fifth play, something kind of starts to happen. You think, this is actually really exciting. By the 10th play, it becomes, you know, you get, you find your way in. So, you know, you really do, you owe it to the music. If you love music, to give it a really good chance of the whole album. On the, Dark Side of the Moon needs to be heard. Yes. You know, it doesn't work. You know, Great Gig in the Sky needs to happen where it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and we always it, think of side A and side B. The end of side A needs to be great gig in the sky. So, um, you know, I, I, that's what we wanted for Milkbone too. It had to be side A and side B when we were programming. Yeah, forgive my ranting. It's just, uh, you know, it's one of my bugbears about music and listening fully to no, the music. Yeah, I no, agree. And that's something 100%. Jesse and I were just talking about the other day. Uh, how you we both have Spotify accounts we both love to find new music via Spotify but you do as you're saying lose that cohesive 
album and something that I wrote over and over in my notes on this is juxtaposition. There's these stark juxtapositions within songs, between songs, this great yeah. sense of contrast. This album does that so well. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time programming the album. So particularly me and Phil were doing versions and recording it as an album and sending it to each other saying, what mm -hmm. do you think of this? Oh, I hadn't thought of putting that there. Yeah, maybe we could put that third. And it took a, a bit of to and froing and it was really enjoyable but really challenging thinking it's it needs but if you just heard canterbury on its own say you're on a, a shuffle mm -hmm. uh, on spotify and you think oh that's quite nice you haven't right. heard the album right you, you know it's if you stop there great but that's the introduction <laughs> <laughs> right I hope, I hope people do that more i mean there's um an older audience that grew up with that and the younger people some of them get it yeah that's really something we've tried to do just with this podcast is right talk about the albums how the albums flow and each song kind of speaks to the others we're all very very big proponents of that absolutely yeah. you could watch the scene of the godfather and think that's a really good scene but <laughs> you know uh what, what about the bits either side of it that tells you what to feel about that scene um if i miss the first three minutes of a film i can't watch it you know it's, no uh... i'm the same way so um moving on to so and then... the next track yeah uh is leaving hawksville this is this song really kind of a technical show off it's pounding it's got those guitar and synth lines kind of unraveling on the top are those bongos at the beginning yeah they're congas actually congas, um okay, okay. Any non-percussionist gets this wrong, so don't feel offended. Okay, so this is the one Graham did. <laughs> everyone, everyone gets it wrong. So yeah, bongos are um, the small things that you fit between your knees, and congas are the big, okay, big drums, and they're, they're normally in pairs too. So yeah, Graham Mann plays some wonderful percussion on this. I mean, he's such a great percussionist. That's interesting. Okay, creates such a vibe, doesn't it? It's um, there's um, triangle. Even the, the triangle is really propulsive. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I really yeah. like that. And it's all done live in real time. So normally, a lot of things will be done on a loop where you have a, you know, a bar of triangle, ching, 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 and it doesn't change. But Graham is playing it and muting it. And if you li just listen to that one line, you think, God, he's really going for it here. He's <laughs> <laughs> going really for it good. on the triangle. <laughs> the whole track is so... Incredible. It's kinetic. I, it... I can't play percussion like Graham does. I haven't got a clue. I, I do play a bit, and but Graham went, came in and uh, Phil spent a day with him, and he really has contributed something quite exciting there. So the the, the title of it's interesting. I, I, I was going to ask Phil you about yesterday. that. It's a sci-fi book. Okay. Um, huh. And um, by Robert Silverberg. And I just looked it up, and it looks really interesting. I must read it. Phil's an avid reader so such a great evocative title mm -hmm. um, the thing with instrumental music is you know what do you call something you haven't got a lyric to, <laughs> right to, but sometimes the name seems to take on extra meaning when you put and the name with the music spoiler alert we're going to be asking you that a lot because the song yeah. the song titles on this album are very enigmatic right i and think I, I know some of them and not all of them i thought okay. i saw uh, on social media i kind of vaguely remember a post where it used to be called leaving hawksville station but somebody got tired of typing so it just was leaving hawksville after that yeah yeah i, think that. I don't know yeah. if that was you or phil <laughs> Yeah, that was Phil. Um, but yeah, and Matt, Matt had a big idea about he wanted this to have a bitch's brew, Miles Davis sort of 
feel. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting. It's good direction. The, the track doesn't end up sounding anything like it, but it's, it put me in a mindset of, oh, yeah, what would the drummers on Bitches Brew have played to this? Maybe something like this. So you, then you have this this connection between the two things because it's quite a funky track, really. Yeah, it is. It, it is. really is. But I didn't want to play anything funky particularly i wanted to play something with a bit more edge i don't know if i've got a um yeah i've got a a demo here this is what phil sent me this is all programmed i thought what the hell am i going to do here So that was the, uh, yeah, that was very, very dense, complex. Mm-hmm. So Phil set, set up a percussion loop and just left it on. And I thought, wow, there's so much stuff here already. I don't, I'm not sure. But this is what I actually tracked to. So this is the version without all the percussion. And uh, this again, you, you put yourself in, in my shoes. What would you play? so i sat there thinking okay so bitches brew it's quite a fast tempo yeah do i go to half time do i really crank it up and this was pretty much a first take where i thought okay I'm going to just play what I can't, I can't even think what to do. I'm just going to throw, throw something at this. So this is just the beginning of the track that you know. Oh, this is with Graham now. Great conga playing. amazing yeah i'm just gonna really is be fairly brutal with it i'm gonna hit hard leave some space because it could have been more of a dancey thing i could have put a four on the floor bass drum more disco-y you know i was gonna say yeah that demo sounded very disco and the result does not sound disco at all i thought no no, i don't want that and i if I was just listening to it there, Phil put some wonderful uh, Ebo guitar on that. So the Ebo is a, a great little device that you fit over the string and it, it vibrates the string infinitely. Okay. So you get a pure note hmm. and then you just fret the note. Robert Fripp uses one with King Crimson a lot and Brian okay. Eno uses them. And if you listen to it, I've only just noticed it. Phil plays some really cool guitar, but ebo is just this line right on top of everything so what's interesting is here in the original version with all that space and then what phil puts on is genius it really is yes a a lot tucked into this one track it's 
really frenetic and it's also got a futuristic quality i don't know in the first demo it sounds futuristic but in a in a throwback way in an old school yeah. way like which made it sound like disco but with it completed it just has like a kind of a futuristic quality about it too it's yeah that's really it's so interesting to hear how the beginning stages and how they came to be that's really i'm always cool. interested in that stuff you know I, if people release the demos i want to listen to them i want to hear because i can imagine the process yeah then. yes and you could play anything you know it could have sounded completely different yep. it was a spur of the moment thing from me where i just thought i know I'm going to do this. Yeah. And then that's it. It could yeah. only be. Yeah. If you got it right the first time, that's all it is. You mean you're. <laughs> <once. you're... laughs> I've done that yesterday, but never mind. No, that's one thing, too, I really appreciated about Matt is that he's not afraid to release his demos in different no, ways because no. it really is so interesting to hear how things came to be and what, what uh, they started off at, what they ended up at. It's, it's really cool to kind of get a peek behind the curtain. And you hear some of that later in the album. We'll get to it, but there's a couple of tracks that we saw. I guess it was the Blue Elephant was released first, but definitely it's kind of different takes on the same melody line. And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, um, we'll get to that. You hear that in, in practice. So Leaving Hawksbill leads into Toys Hill, which is the shortest track on the album. This might be kind of an esoteric reference. Maybe this speaks to what I'm into. But hearing this, I it sounds like opening credits to an Italian horror film. <laughs> That's what immediately came to mind for me. Yeah. Um, it's atmospheric. It's evocative. The only criticism I have is that it sounds like a tease. I want to hear this whole song. Yeah, it's I so short. It longer. Yeah, to me, it sounded like it was a stormy day, which I really loved. I want to listen to it on like a rainy day, but I want to listen to more of it. I don't want to listen to less than a minute of it. So oh, I'd, I'd love to do do something <laughs> with it. Phil presented it and it was like, well, that's it. That that that's done. actually a place near here in Kent it's a, a very high viewpoint and it's really close to where Phil was brought up and it's about 20 minutes from here so it's quite okay. a famous local place so it's really nice to to get the, the Kent reference so people from this area of Kent go oh yes I've been oh, there that's really interesting yeah I would have a had no idea so that's good no. now everybody knows <laughs> yeah, so, cool. and I didn't do anything I thought no there's nothing sometimes you've got to know when not to play and you know just keep out that's beautiful leave it yeah um, it's definitely I, a synth workout yeah yeah it's incredible i just love it it's so beautiful yeah it really is did you have anything i don't want to oh no that was it automatic foot <laughs> yeah moving on yeah, to automatic foot as we discussed this is the first of the sister tracks from the blue elephant entitled the blue elephant 
And I think when we did the Blue Elephant episode, that was our last episode, I think I described this as one half carnival music and one half acid trip. Uh, <laughs> there's a great yeah. electric guitar work in this one and then of the middle third of the songs. And then it goes into the Blue Elephant theme again for the last third. And it's very bassy and sinister right at the very end. It's it's a good track. Yeah, when when the match sent us, you know, something to play with and he said, oh, I'm going to put this on the other album I'm working on at the same time. And we're like, are you sure? You know, you know, do you want to use it? He's like, no, let's see what two bands do with it. And um, so I, I, me and Phil had no idea what was going to come from the other album at all. So that was quite good because we were just completely open. The opening piano part is a challenge if you want to go with the time signature, which is four four three four 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 three four four four. Oh my gosh! Wow! And I just thought, oh, hang on, that keeps. <laughs> if you listen to it one way, it sounds really smooth. But when you start digging into where the bar lines actually are, which you sometimes have to know when you're playing with it, I thought, oh no. But then they sent me, um, here's the demo. So this was, um, I think I stuck pretty much to this because it was safer. Sometimes that's okay. Yeah, this one could have gone wrong. So this is uh, program drums. pretty good <laughs> and this is me so mine's looser yeah a little more reverb it's a looser it sounds it sounds a lot warmer but yeah I, this isn't like it needs the drums obviously to move it along but it's not like a drum centric track no no so Just i think what you did yeah i think what you did with moving it along but not focusing not making the drums front and center was really what it needed because there's yeah, just so much going on call. with it anyway it's yeah, I tried playing along with with the actual time signatures, and it just it sounded really too smart, too smug. It's like, oh no, no, we, this has got to just drive. So um, yeah, yeah, that was a. It's just so matte, isn't it? That piano, it's, it's uh, very matte. Yeah, it is. It's such a catchy melody, and really kind of distills a lot of what he does as far as the psychedelic thing, but mm. also sort of an earworm and also kind of scary also kind of scary like a little frightening this version sounds a lot more muscular to me it's it kind of takes that bass track and uses it as a canvas uh which you all sort of paint on which you don't quite get the same way on the blue elephant version yeah. the album version i agree with that that's a good description i think there was another section uh let's see what i think i prepared something i can't remember what i prepared let's have a quick listen to the demo Now this is me. Great bass playing from Phil. So, so good, so yes. good. Quite often the etiquette will be, don't play over the solo. You know, mm. there's a soloist playing, so you just support the soloist. But Phil really likes it if 
I kind of go for it and try to spark off ideas. But it's strange because we're not in the room together. It has to all happen separately. So sometimes I would send him some drums and then it would come back with a new bass line that okay. kind of works with what I did. A lot of the musicians I've worked with recently say um, working with some live drums on the demos is so great because it's a bit of a luxury that you can't always have. And it kind sure. of steers the, the song or the, the tune in a different way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I could really let let rip on that. And I'm listening to his demo, very offbeat drums, very angular. So I wanted to keep that, but keep it really loose and swinging as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, very much enjoyed playing that one. You're, you're, it sounds like you're just complimenting each other, but you're both very much doing your own thing, which just makes it so interesting to listen to. I think it helps that we've played together for so long. Sure. It's been, um, what's it been now? Nearly 25 years. So um, I kind of know what's coming and he knows what's coming. So we kind of, we second guess each other mm -hmm. telepathically. And sometimes live, it is quite something where we both hit the same figure and look at each other. What did you just, <laughs> you just played that together and never done this before. It's really special. That's really uh, cool. Phil is actually partly um, family member of mine as well, unexpectedly. Oh yeah? But my partner has an extended family and I used to see them every Christmas and talk to the, um, to the granddad about music and he'd always say oh my son plays music oh yeah and everyone says that to me you know music teacher drummer <laughs> oh my son plays music <sighs> really oh good um, i am actually really pleased but i do hear a lot um i, I used to play guitar so anyway i listened to some of it and it was really good um and then you know over the years kept going and I was doing these gigs with Phil and then one one Christmas I went there and said to the to the guy oh, I'm just working with this great new bass player it's so exciting I don't know why I said it to him because it's a bit specialized to talk to someone's granddad about <laughs> that and uh, he said oh what's his name I said oh Phil and he said oh my son's name's Phil oh my gosh. <laughs> I said oh really and we carried on chatting and and then he just said what's his other name I said Scrag he said yeah that's my name that's so crazy. What are the, the odds? The whole room just stopped. <laughs> You're That's talking about so Phil. crazy. But yeah, I'm working with Phil. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the odds on that are so extraordinarily right. high. That is um, so crazy. I love stories like that. They, they give you goosebumps. Like, whoa. It, it does. It really does. I rang Phil and said, I've been having Christmas Eve with your dad for the last five, six years. <laughs> what what do you mean <laughs> no i've been with your dad <laughs> that so, is um, so funny so yeah so we we have a bond and you know working with him musically is just a, a dream and you know combining it with matt so i, I feel very very lucky <laughs> yeah yeah that's oh, really we're lucky to hear it you're going to get sick of this question but we're going to keep asking it the song title on this one, oh, Automatic Foot. Yeah. Especially this one, yeah. I did ask Phil yesterday and he said, I don't know, I think he, he can't remember. He started to say something garbled about it and then said, I don't know, um, I just made it up. So there, no deep meaning on that one. Such Word a great I know it's actually part of the sewing machine. And I said, is it anything to do with the sewing machine? He said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So it's like, okay, it's not that. Um, <laughs> but funny. he just came up with that name and mm. it had to be. It's such a great name. No deeper <laughs> meaning. And the one that we're like, there's got to be a meaning behind this. No, nope. 
no, nothing on that one. <laughs> That's so funny. Do we have anything else on Automatic Foot? Just that it's a great song. It's honestly one of my favorite on the albums. The Blue Elfin oh, is one right. of my favorite albums, and it's just so cool to hear this kind of expansion on it. It was also yes. interesting because uh, I know Phil mentioned that these both came out at the same time, but I don't think he ever got into details about how it was used on this album. And it's interesting to know that Matt knew that he was going to be using it on something else, but also wanted to have it on this. It wasn't just a demo that he was working on. It was kind of like he already had an intention for it. Yeah, I was a bit nervous because I really liked what we did. And I thought, mm -hmm. what if the other album will take priority and we're not allowed to use it but Matt oh, said right. why not and do what I like with it so yeah. um <laughs> Acid so, yeah. Jazz isn't going to tell me what to do with my music no we, we get to do what we like so um yeah all right so Milkbone the title track I think um I love this one so much this one always reminds me it has that real 70s throwback vibe and now more mm -hmm. recently listening to KPM in the with Matt's coming album, it gives me Alan Hawkshaw vibes because it's got that like 70s cop show kind of womp womp yes. kind of feel. And there's a like there's a shift in mood about a minute 15 in, it gets a little melancholy. Yeah. And then the drums are really highlighted around the two minute mark, some spacey sounding synths in the background. And then it gets more ominous with about 40 seconds left and circles back to that opening 70s cop show feel. So this is just, there's so much happening in this one and it's really upbeat and I love it. Oh, it's so interesting to hear you say that because um, I spoke to Phil yesterday and I said, you know, what was, what was your vibe? He said, Matt said it has to be a 70s cop show vibe. Shut up! Seriously. <laughs> it's that written so it in my cool. notes here. because you know we do this for every episode but to, you know we always say this is what i think this is what i think but we have no way of knowing if that's really true or not but to hear like live like confirmation <laughs> that that's what you were going for that like that exactly that's amazing oh uh, you nailed it awesome. i don't think i was given that um when i recorded it I, I i don't remember getting any guidance on that one um so i just um I just played what I thought worked. Matt provided the ambient synth on on that one as well. I was just going to ask how this became the title track. Did... I think um, I think it, the sound of it was what we were after, particularly. Okay. Um, we just thought it has to be that this has to be the the track that the album stands on. Um, so if you were to listen to one song, this might give you a flavour of of our feel. So um. Sure. Yeah, that, that's the only reason it was the title track. We just really loved just, it as well. Just felt emblematic. And, and it, it certainly does have that kind of that 70s, mid 70s synth thing. And uh, it's, uh, oh, yeah, I, I really just love the sound of it. I play it all the time. You it's know, so I, I should be playing other people's music in my life. <laughs> and I'm walking along and I think, oh, go on then. Let's listen to it. <laughs> yeah. oh, I really like this because I'm, I'm far enough removed now to so just enjoy it. And, yeah. 
I'm not hearing all the little things that we didn't do. I'm just thinking, this is great. You know, sometimes I listen back to an album and think, oh no, <laughs> why did we do that? But this one, it feels really complete. So That's good. I'm glad that you're able to do that. It was a really good creative um, environment. They were so positive. Matt and Phil, you know, when I sent them the the drum recordings, you know, I had such great messages back. Like, wow, this is really great, you know. And it, it that spurred me on to do more. And yeah. like, okay, I think I'm onto something here. It's so important that the way you you react to each other creatively. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. I know some producers they like to sow discord. I've seen it in the studio, and I really hate it. It's like, hey, you're not doing very well today. You need to really bring it. You know, you need to bring your game and all this crap. And I don't respond well to that. I just think, no, don't do that. I've had yeah. someone do it to me and I thought, no, don't try that on me. It, it's a cheap shot. I'm trying yeah. to wind yeah. me up so I play really hard. Yeah, right. I, I've seen people broken by it. You know, I mean, Steely Dan are famous for shredding musicians and, you know, the world's greatest musicians leave the studio in tears. Oh, wow. When they were doing the Asia album, you know, you, you read the greatest players in the world are walking out in tears saying, I can't play anymore. So this is why it's nice working with Phil and Matt, because there's none of that. It's just support. Yeah. I really like what you did here. Or if they didn't like it, you know, sometimes it's like, I like that, but could you try this? How mm -hmm. about this? And... That happens all over the place, and we did it all to each other. Like, I think, we, why don't we change that completely? And sometimes I would say, I'm not going to play any drums on that bit. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. sure. No, I don't. <laughs> so, um, anyway, That's really I don't good. I was just going to say, it is interesting, though, how Matt does have that need for control, but that's not at all present on this album. It's a true collaboration. Yeah. It's, I think he liked the fact that it wasn't his name. He, he was really okay. adamant. That this was not a Matt Berry album. This needed to be um, Phil's album primarily, and it is Phil's album. Phil wrote you know, ninety percent of it, huh. and, and Matt was just the catalyst. He was great. You know, he would encourage us. He would come up with the right thing at the right time to move it along. You know, and sometimes you'd have a month where nothing happens, and then Matt would message us going, "Why don't we do this?" And he's like, <laughs> Yeah, let's do that. And then the whole thing gets going again. So, yeah, it, he really didn't want his name to be... He, he was really nervous about the promotion because he was. we wanted to use his name because of who he is. You know, it's it would be crazy sure. not to use his name. But he was really adamant about, you keep it small, you guys first, and then I'm here. And I think that worked really well because then he's free to take a back seat a bit more and let Phil produce it. And I think he enjoyed that. I hope he did anyway. He's doing another one with us, so maybe he did. <laughs> Seems like That's it worked That's a good sign. Okay. Yeah, we were wondering about that too, why he didn't really, he didn't do, I think he tweeted about it maybe once and that was it. So we're like, yeah. hmm. He's he not said doing it's your thing. You do, you know, do what you want. It's not we my assume, thing. Yeah, we assume that was kind of what it was, that he didn't want to, like, steal the thunder and make it his thing. He wanted it to be collaborative. <laughs> yeah, people want him to be the person to speak to. And he said, I don't want to be the person, because it's Phil. Phil wrote it all. Mm -hmm. so, um, but, of course, interviewers in the media don't want to speak to Phil as much well, as Well, you're the one who ended up with the pool quotes. Yeah, you talked to, what, what was it, Prognizing? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a chat with... Um, Sid Smith, their, their um, yeah. reviewer there, and they were really positive. You know, we I think both Phil and I had a, a real moment of panic. We'd finished the album and we messaged, messaged each other saying, is this utterly stupid? 
is this have we completely lost our heads this is rubbish and i said phil no no i don't think it is and i played it and thought oh yeah i think maybe it is it's, oh no what are we gonna do oh we're gonna look really ridiculous and then it went out to prog and then they just loved it and then this wave of affection came back and we could both listen to it again and actually no it is okay we got into their um end of year uh top 20s which was so nice because nice, we really were cool. with some big bands well deserved yeah um which was so you know it's a dream come true because i i buy that magazine and to be actually interviewed and quoted in it it's like oh my god <laughs> that's awesome i'm too old for this sort of stuff to happen to me <laughs> but um it is so uh, yeah. Tara, did you have anything else to add about this track? I just love this track. It's so funky and it it's just very 70s. Um, it's my favorite one on the album, I think. I don't think I have much to add. I do have a question though. Yeah. A little bit of an aside, just because we're, you know, talking about Milkbone and that's gonna be the title of the next one, I'm sure. You're recording the next album in the same way that the first one was recorded. Yeah. Yeah. If you could you know, if if schedules weren't a thing and you could record it all together, would you, or do you think that this is just like the perfect way to actually record these albums? I do really like recording this way now. And Matt's schedule is really crazy. Difficult. Because I mean, we were going to do some stuff in the studio beginning of this year, I think. And then, no, he's actually gone for six months, then he's in Australia. And then that's why we can't tour as composed, yeah. you know, because it nearly happened this year. You know, there was, at Christmas, there was talk. Oh, maybe we'll do it again. And it's it's not that no one wants to. It's just no time so filming. This other stupid gig that keeps them away from music. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, fond of that one too. We are. We're he always that says too. he'd rather do the music. But <laughs> of course, you know, music doesn't pay the bills. We do it creatively. But uh, yeah, I can see why. But he's in such great stuff. It's not like he's no. summoning some terrible. Right. Soap opera, is it? You know, he's... no. We're all big fans of everything he's. Well, most of the things he's been in. Most of the yeah, things he's yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's done a lot of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, but that's why I think this is a good approach. There are three pieces of music for this new album that Phil and I recorded about six months ago, where we just went into my studio and jammed, and it's pretty good. So we might use some of that. But um, I really like recording this way. Um, now I think um, I'm getting a good sound I enjoy the freedom I can potter around on my own no pressure yeah multiple takes and I sometimes I get really avant-garde and I dismantle the drums and I start hitting them with hammers or whatever you know I I, I was dropping cymbals into water and so like, oh this is interesting I might <laughs> use this sound somewhere I In love the studio, that. no way yeah <laughs> No, that's thousand really pounds cool. a day yeah no. <laughs> that's, that's really, really cool saying that yeah and maybe that's exactly what this album needs it needs everybody to be creative separately and to add things that way i mean not yeah. all albums are going to be this way but that's what milk bone is so that's yeah really cool. yes i think we'll do it again so well we've gotten to the last track on side one which is two sequences. This is the other song that's kind of a sister version of what's on the Blue Elephant. This is, a, I thought, a more frantic version of Safe Passage. And similarly to Automatic Foot, it kind of 
uses that existing melody line, and I'm, I'm not sure which came first, but it uses that melody line as a playground to really build on a template for these kind of wild instrumentals, whirling synths. This one sounded like the most improvised song on the album to my ears. Yeah, Two Sequences was a very uh, interesting origin where Phil and Matt sent each other some some music totally randomly and it just happened to be at the same tempo in the same key and Phil just put the two together it's completely different tracks they weren't wow. meant to come together and hmm. he just lined them up and that's what you hear and that's oh. why it's called two sequences oh um, okay ah oh, makes sense and it, yeah it's it's pretty frantic um shall I play you a little bit of my demo that I got sent so yes please um, yeah please do <laughs> have a listen So that's what I was sent. And I thought, oh, no, that's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I love that's it's your first reaction to every track they said you. Oh, no, that's really hard. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, um, I've really got to do something good here. So I thought I'd give you a little bit of an, an alternate version that I didn't send them. So this is my first attempt at it. So I still did this weird drum pattern that he had on his demo. So that was my first attempt. And that middle section with the kind of Latin drum thing, I spent a full day on that. It was really challenging to play to a recording standard. It, it's um it's kind of a jazzy thing that john coltrane and love supreme um elvin jones the drummer would play that pattern so it's quite famous amongst drummers as a latin pattern and i've always known it and then suddenly i had to play it and i thought oh no that's really hard so i spent a day working i just remember getting up and down and up and down up and down but in the end we decided to scrap that which <laughs> I was almost pleased about after I spent ages getting it right. So this is um, what happened in the end. very odd timing of that melody and so in the end I played through it and just tried to keep in with it and and let the thing flow so that was a real 
interesting one to play. I spent a good day on that one. But in the end, I really enjoyed what I put together and uh, I think it's come out all right. Yeah, the jumps kind of weave in and out of it. It's cool. My notes were just that I, I like the use of the melody better on this than I do on Safe Passage because the way it landed, now that I know that they, that Phil just like layered them on top of each other, is that it kind of breaks the song up into sections. So mm -hmm. the first section is really synth heavy and then it gets much jazzier with the horns in the second. And then the end is kind of almost a tantric repeating quality. And then it just fades out, gets very dreamy towards the end. So I like the breakup of it. And I like the way the drums kind of weave in and out of it. It's, it works. I just layering them top is crazy, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> it works. I mean, all these pieces had to have a story and um and multiple sections and atmospheres contained mm -hmm. within and it's really interesting you know you have to really go with the feelings the gut feeling about you know what are these notes making me feel like and um yeah it, it really um it's so much fun to put something together because when you play a song you know you get your verse and chorus and then you do the verse again and then you do you you figure out your parts and you stick to them but this is much more fluid mm -hmm. and just catch certain sections and um yeah that was a good one yeah love it i kind of blew my mind that they both just sent each other yeah. like something that just worked perfectly <laughs> let's just layer them okay that works so speaking yeah. of songs that like tell a story and, and give a mood i don't know if this is the story that it's meant to portray but bleak strategy to me it's like two songs in one i hear the drums are very punchy and energetic but the music is sort of droning and almost sounds grumpy to me um <laughs> there's some intermittent brightness and then it ultimately fades out softly but this song overall it makes me picture somebody having a really bad day just walking down the street hands in their pockets rain cloud following them but like everybody around them is going along with their normal day not having a bad day <laughs> not knowing what this poor dude's going through but i don't know that's just what it makes me think of that's like the picture paints in my head no idea if that makes any sense to anybody except <laughs> interesting <laughs> view yeah um, yeah, yeah I, I, let me have a listen hang on <laughs> no. i'm just thinking Clearly, it was just me <laughs> doesn't really sound like that hang on <laughs> It's a bit menacing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, interestingly, um, we called that initially Phil and Percy after Phil Collins and Percy Jones. Okay. Oh. Hmm. Phil's fretless bass playing is just extraordinary on that. It's he's hitting harmonics and it's it's got depth and um and I just thought it's just so there's a band from the seventies that I don't know you may not know them because they're not that well known but called Brand X. It was a band that Phil Collins formed to play fusion music outside of Genesis. So they formed in about seventy five, seventy six, and um the bass player Percy Jones plays fretless bass like that and and Phil and I have always just loved his playing and so I was just trying to channel the the, the lightness of Phil Collins and the creativity of him I mean it's, it's in my DNA his playing from the 70s mm -hmm. uh, sure. 80s not so much because it all became something else you know and it, it was great for him he made a lot of money um <laughs> musically kind of changed so yeah I, I wanted to to give it that phil collins thing and phil's bass playing on that is quite something and um, 
I'll tell you what's interesting is it's called Bleak Strategy. And um, it's a bit of a wordplay on a set of cards by Brian Eno called Oblique Strategies. Oh, I don't okay. know. If you've heard okay. I had to have a set. And what it is, lots of music. Bowie used these with Eno when he was working um, on Low and Heroes. You pick a card when you're stuck in the studio or when you're writing. So uh, everyone's arguing. No one can decide what to do. You randomly pick a card and there's an instruction. First card I pick. Abandon normal instruments. Oh, <laughs> okay. It's a helpful when you're a drummer. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. We get rid of that. I'm going to get um, a dustbin in um, yeah. hammers. So he used these with Bowie and with you too. And um, me and Phil have always been a fan of that approach. There's some great instructions. Yeah. Let's see another one. What to increase? What to reduce? Hmm. Okay. Tidy up. <laughs> Give way to your worst impulse. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. These are so creative, aren't they? Yeah. Don't be frightened of cliches. That's a good one. Yeah. Can you imagine it just completely unblocking something? You know, you're all, the most important thing is the thing most easily forgotten. <laughs> Some of them you think, oh, I don't know about that one. Sounds like a fortune cookie. <laughs> um, yes. This is my favorite. Do the washing up. Literally and figuratively. I've used that one in the studio. I've used it. It's like, right, I'm going to do the washing up. I'm gone. What does it look like to do the washing up in the studio? What does that mean to you? Well, you just wash up your cups and everything. And um, and, and, and then while you're doing the washing up, you think, oh, yeah. I know. Oh, so literally. Yeah, literally doing dishes. Do the washing up. It's such a genius <laughs> idea. Yeah. Get it is. Yeah. Take a break. Go think of something. Do a, man a manual menial task and yeah right focus on something sensory yeah so these are great you can you can still buy a few of these um, sets now but yeah we didn't use them on on the track but you know i thought we thought we would quote it or phil did i was very curious about the name for this one so that is an excellent answer you might have a guide track here let's see there we go let's see what i was given No fretless bass. So we've got match sequence. This was Matt's idea. So I sit there thinking, okay, I've got to do something. So I didn't have many goes at this. This is one of the first takes. And then Phil added the fretless bass afterwards, after me. departure from where it started to where it ended up that's crazy yeah that is yeah, so cool it, to hear that evolution yeah it's um you know on another day we'd have all played something different um from that sequence part that matt sent us but that's what we just said something percy jones and phil collins would play okay i know and it's only a feeling because you don't actually end up copying them there's no phrase that they actually ever played 
but it's just a mindset of what's the kind of thing they might have done. Yeah. And sometimes that's enough to set you thinking and take you somewhere because you've got infinite choice, haven't you? Well, kind of. You've got a, a tempo, but really you could play a lot of things over that. Yeah. It's so interesting because I didn't get at all what Jesse got, but to me this track sounds really paranoid. It's like... Yeah, which makes the title totally fit, but it's got that kind of like persistent ticking rhythm and synth in the background, and it just sounds like racing thoughts to me. I don't know yeah. if that was the brief, but that's what I got. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. It's really interesting to hear what you guys think because um, you know I find it hard to separate out of the actual playing of it. So to sure. hear what you hear is like, oh yeah, it does sound like that. Yeah. <laughs> So the next track is Soft Weed. I might be completely off base, but at times during the track, it almost sounds like you're hitting something hollow. Are you using just a regular drum kit or are you were you kind of using something crazy? It could be something Graham Mann is playing. Um, okay. It, Specifically it's, around the one minute mark. It's, um, it, it just it, sounds a little hollow. He is there? credited with percussion on that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I'll start with the demo and you'll hear what I got. Graham with his triangle again. Is that what that is? I know now what I think what you, Graham went to phil's house with a big box of stuff okay this was a completely improvised percussion thing where he literally was just picking stuff up and reacting to the music as it's complete by chance and there are some sounds where i think he you know like he drops something and i think you can hear him speak at one stage oh so. okay yes yeah. yes Definitely. i know that, that. Tune, i think he says or something like that okay so, there yeah. are some strange noises here. So this is still without me. Just Graham. That's a cabasa. So, yeah, that's a, a percussion instrument called a cabasa, and he's running his fingers down it. Okay. And it's amazing. When you put a lot of reverb on something, it just suddenly sounds lovely. <laughs> and it's just him scraping a, an instrument randomly. It's, it's not like a rhythmic part because the song's so dreamy. It is. Right. Yeah. That's yes. exactly what I said about it. I said it's so dreamy and mellow. It's another great rainy day tune. What now I think was what I was hearing. I said that there sounds like an old fashioned alarm clock about 127. Is that what it is? It is an alarm yeah, clock? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was thinking <laughs> he maybe picked, it was the He triangle. picked it out of his bag and oh. set it off. Oh, my God. oh that's, that's so cool. That's funny. Uh, yeah, I said, this one sounds like a dreamscape to me. And then I mentioned the male voice around 252, but I couldn't hear what it's saying. So we should credit Graham with vocals on this one as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I yeah, said, that's definitely Graham. Yeah. I said, this track wouldn't be out of place at all, I don't think, on music for Insomniacs. It just really sounds so dreamlike without the jump scares. So I really like this one a lot. <laughs> yeah, this, a song like this is, um, or a piece like this is, for me, the most challenging because I'm not needed, but I want to contribute. <laughs> so what can I contribute and not spoil it and still provide something? So I've got um, 
I think I've got a first take here of something that I didn't think worked. So you can hear what I did first time and it's not quite as good as what we ended up with. slightly too busy and I was just trying to find a yeah. line so then in the end I just thought I've got to bring it back more Slap them. Alarm clock. <laughs> so I just had to breathe slowly. Yeah. To that was definitely the way to go. Yeah, the first yeah. take sounded like a almost like a jam session, like a jazz jam session. Yeah, where everybody's kind of just doing their their thing. But yeah, I like the way it ended up better for sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a, that's the thing about you. You start somewhere, and mm -hmm. then you've got to use your taste. Hopefully, yeah, You're like mm, that's not right. Yes. Let's try pull out any good bits and leave the the not so good bits. And yeah, that's that's a real challenge. I find that it's much easier to play a groove, but yeah. you know, that would sound ridiculous. It, right. it, it can't have a groove. It's got to float. So yeah. so yeah, Graham did uh, some good work on that. I think he. Um, he creates a whole little story of, of noises and mm -hmm. sound effects. And I don't know what any of it means. He just jammed it. Yeah. And, it, and Phil just said, yep, that's going on as it is. We're not going to edit it. There it is. Yeah, I love that. It is a beautifully evocative track. And I don't know to what degree Matt was involved on this particular one, but something that came to mind, it, Matt said a couple of years back, I want to say it was the word in your ear interview that he did a little after Blue Elephant was released, but he started off talking about how he fell in love with psychedelic sounds and he called them wet sounds. He said he always loved these wet sounds. I think he might have said something like it sounds like they were thrown in the water. And I definitely hear that here. It's got that echoing, ambient, atmospheric, like underwater feel. Yeah. It's like you're drifting through the swamp, <laughs> listening to all the creatures around, which is great. I'm yeah. making these things. So this leads into redshift. And I warned that I was going to use the term juxtaposition a lot. <laughs> and this is definitely a juxtaposition. Drums are front and center. So I'd love to hear about that. The synths break in around 52 seconds. And it sounds like this is just everyone having fun kind of showing off what they can do. It's got more of those retro funk vibes, more of those KPM vibes to my ears. And the end, or around the end, around 2.50, you hear these, I think they're called space synth sounds. I always think of them as synth squiggles, but Matt would kill me for saying that. They remind me of rockets taking off. So yeah. it's just like a fun, virtuosic, just kind of a show off track, but in the best possible way. 
That's so funny because I said this like the same thing that it's it's got that 70s funky sound, but this one like the drums are the star of the show for sure. And Definitely. that there's just so much happening that it sounds chaotic, but like at the same time that definitely sounds like the it was the intention of the track like what you said like everybody's having fun with it doing their thing yeah i am um, i think i i kind of accidentally on purpose but accidentally did two drum solos not on purpose <laughs> really so, there was a section where it drops and i thought oh that'd be it because i was playing it live as one take and i thought oh yeah i think i need to do something here and then the next bit i'd forgotten is a definite solo section with some stops and i was like oh no I've just done it. I'm going to do I'll do another one. Right. <laughs> and um, Matt and Phil liked it. And it's like, okay, well, I've done two solos. It's far too much. It's, it's silly. <laughs> I shouldn't do two solos. I should do one. But we thought, okay. And this was a real interest. Oh, yeah. The original title of this was Matt's. It's a slightly obscene title. Shocking. Oh, yeah. do, do, do it. tell. Very English, very British. He called it Arse Hunter. <laughs> So for all my files, I looked it up. I'm thinking, you know, where is this song? Oh, God, it's Arse Hunter. Of course. (laughs) What does that even mean? Because I don't know. It just sounds sounds slightly rude. Um, It does. He's had some funny ideas. He had a set of names for the band, and I really can't read some of them out. Illegal. Oh, um, there was ten names, and I, I think I, I remember falling on the floor laughing. They were so hilarious. They were so outrageous that it's like, oh, you can't say that. You can't oh, even send a- that as a message. That I'm going to have to delete this message. We can't. <laughs> but but um, you can't do this to us. Yeah, you I know. I really can't share it. So yeah, one of the nicer names he he wants to call it the album and the band Cream Cheese. Um, okay. We said no. One Eyed Mountain was another one that nearly got used. Squelch was a name that well, we didn't. Oh, because it is kind of a squelchy album, isn't it? I kind of love that. Yeah, yeah. It's got a, a squelch. No phone thing. too. Squelch. Maybe I might <laughs> might see if we can I can persuade them. But the other names could actually call uh, cause a kind of international incident. Um, <laughs> that I, can't, I can't say them. Um, I just looked them back up. I went back through my WhatsApp thinking there was some funny. Oh my god! I can't believe he said that. Um, <laughs> he's so funny. But anyway, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we had a kind of Herbie Hancock headhunters feel for this. That was the approach, kind of early to mid seventies vibe, where we can all play out a bit because there's so many tracks that are really measured and beautiful, and it's like come on, let's really step up and and hit this one hard. So, um, yeah, we wanted to have this kind of performance feel. So I did it as a whole take, which is insane, because this is far too difficult to do as a whole take. So let me play you a little bit. Here's the demo that I got. So you can hear a Herbie Hancock thing here on this Wawa. Imagine my joy getting this, thinking, oh, yes. 
Yes, please. I would have had a I'll nervous breakdown. <laughs> So that's the uh, the thing that I actually track. Here's an alternate take then. So as I said, I do two ridiculous drum solos. I don't do drum solos. It's not in my repertoire, really. I'm a kind of groovy sort of player, um, not a show-offy, solo-y. But I thought, okay, I need to step up here and do something. So this is my first take. Let's see what comes out. So much more space on that one, but it, it's holding the music back a little bit. I kind of love that though. Yeah, I quite like it actually, but... And now another solo opportunity comes up. So that was my first take through. Thinking, <laughs> I really love that. No, that's uh, maybe I thought maybe I could send them that, but I should have another pass at it, you know, and see what comes out. So this is what I ended up with. Slightly better EQ now. Oh yeah, you'll hear one thing here um, where I was really pleased with the take, and I accidentally hit a symbol, <laughs> and it really annoyed the hell out of me, and I could not. I tried again, thinking, no, I'll do it again. I never got it as good. So it's gone in. You'll hear me accidentally hit something. So yeah, that was the chance for me to have a play because, you know, Phil beautifully solos throughout. He takes all the main lead lines. He plays all the guitar as well. Yeah, Matt does mo mo mostly synth and sequences and things. And um, so I thought, yep, yeah, I'm going to have a play here. Yep. Um, so that was Redshift. I didn't hear the wayward symbol. It's oh, didn't you? totally fine. I here. didn't. I never would have pegged it as a mistake. I heard it once he pointed it out, but it, yeah. it didn't it sound like a mistake. Yeah, not it at all. Good. I was sticks flailing around and I hit it and I thought, oh, come on. <laughs> I'm not in the middle of this. And I thought, oh, maybe people will think I did it on purpose. I so. would never have noticed that that was a mistake. But there you all go. The other There's drummers, I, mean, I heard that. Wanted. 
Yeah, obviously. we were talking about keeping in the wonkiness. So yeah, there's yes. the wonkiness. Drum machine would not have done that. It's a real <laughs> it wouldn't person. have been as good. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Gotcha. For Cecilia, we have a, a quote. So Cecilia obviously is a longtime collaborator of uh, Matt Berry and the Maypoles, and she spoke to Prague Magazine about this track. The article was titled The Perfect 10, and it was released on December 31st, 2021. And it goes on to say, the 11 track self-titled debut album even starts with a song called Canterbury. And later on, on side two, they reunite with vocalist slash multi-instrumentalist Cecilia Fage for a track named Cecilia. Fage reveals to Prague, I recorded a kind of live Mellotron for Matt and Phil, me singing every note in the scale, which they then turned into a synthesized me. And then they named the track after me. That is so cool. It is so an cool. honor. Yeah. It's so unique, isn't it? We we have all those notes of her beautiful voice and we can construct anything. And it's just beautiful. It's, you know, it, it's such a start to the song, isn't it? It is. And it goes it, into yes. something really crazy. It does. Really <laughs> oh my gosh. I laughed out loud when Phil sent me the the demos i was listening to it you know really thinking this is beautiful i don't know what oh my god what's just happened yeah um, <laughs> <and> so <laughs> i'm sorry that's phil's mind that's the sound of phil's brain that's so funny i <laughs> called that <laughs> i said celia Page's synthesized vocals have a sort of spiritual ghostly quality and then it shifts around the two minute 10 mark to a part that i called the vintage video game so this part, this music reminds me of the original Super Mario Brothers, where they're in the underground world with the Tuttles, and it's like super ominous sounding. And then right back into right after that, it goes back into like a mellow jazz club, and then it gets softer and softer, and then it boom jolts you right back into the sewers of Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> and it's just like a mashup of so many different things, but it's so unique and cool. It, it is, isn't it? There's nothing else that I know of. <laughs> that sounds like that. You can't say, oh yeah, that, that sounds a bit like a soft machine track no. from 1970. No, it doesn't. It, <laughs> it just sounds completely unique. I couldn't place it. And then when you said the like Super Mario, I was like, oh yeah. Right? I've got, I think I've got a little bit of the demo of that one. Let's, um, right, let's see what we got. can't believe what he programmed there that sounds amazing <laughs> i thought wow he's really spent some time on that i think at one stage he may have even considered using it i may be wrong so forgive me if i'm but i think matt said no we've got to have real drums we can't yeah. use that and he clearly had spent a week programming that because it sounds pretty amazing so i got that and thought okay i need to do something so um this is what i did
So uh, that was um, me really throwing my hands at it, thinking, well, I can't copy what Phil did because that would take me a year to learn it. So I, I know kind of what he's hearing. So I'm going to take it a bit further and make it even more crazy. And um, I was influenced by a Phil Collins drum part from a Genesis song called Carpet Crawlers. Um, so if you were to listen to what Phil Collins plays on that, you might recognise bits of what I did. But this goes a lot crazier. So yeah, amazing from, by the way, we're also inspired by 10CC, I'm Not In Love, with the way that huh. they stack those vocals on that song. Okay. And it's the same idea, really. Um, they had it in 1975. It's incredible how they did it then, you know, multi-track. Now that you say that, I can totally hear it. Yeah, yeah, that was a big, big influence on that. So we've got the Mellotron influence from the progressive things like Genesis and then 10CC to, to get that vocal. So Interesting. Yeah, yeah I needed crazier drums. I, <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I just really, I, I, I hope we never play it live because I have no <laughs> idea what I did. I just remember thinking, right, I'm really going to go for something and I don't know what it is. Um, and that was fun. That's funny. <laughs> so, but please, now I listened back and thought, wow, that doesn't fuck me. Yeah, wow, that drummer's fun. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll probably never be able to play it again. But that's great. It's, it's on tape. So tape i'm so old-fashioned aren't i it's on noughts and ones <laughs> courtney do you have anything for this one just that it is a study in contrasts, uh kind of like you said jesse yeah. but it feels like a coherent whole it really really comes together it's got that ethereal quality of cecilia's vocals which i think comes through on everything she sings on that distorted guitar and then i think the most straightforward jazz on the album at around the two minute 26 second mark so it's just these shifts like i said juxtaposition again there it is again <laughs> but it it just flows it's a really cool track all right we are nearing the end of the album the last track on the vinyl lp although not on the cd and digital versions velvet black so this song starts with this beating heart sound then adds this quiet hush percussion it's got a trombone uh grandman's trombone weaving through which gives it a really mournful quality washes of simps around the two minute mark it's just it fits the title it's velvety smooth rich it's got a hypnotic meditative quality to it and i want to ask i thought i heard kind of a wailing vocal this is on the instrumental version but i thought i heard a vocal around one minutes 15 seconds it might have been a synth but i i had to ask uh what that was because it definitely sounded like a woman almost a great gig in the sky kind of whale oh wow i don't think there are any vocals on it at all i thought it might be a trombone but like part of like a trombone note like a, a yeah. held note sure could be it yeah see if i can find it and identify it I'll have to ask <laughs> Phil. That sounds like a female vocal. Um, okay, so I'm not crazy. Nice one. <laughs> yeah. It might I hear be it too. because he may have taken that because this song, me and Phil did um, actually a, a couple of years before with the vocal from Harriet, and we just did it for fun, um, just a track, and I really loved it. And um, when we thought about putting it on the album, Matt said we really should keep it entirely instrumental. And uh, we thought, yeah, you're right, actually, we should. 
So Matt had the idea of replacing the vocal with a trombone. Um, okay. That could have been a... A, a wayward a note. Yeah, Interesting. I thought the vocal version was done after. I didn't realize that that was the original track. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Okay. And we used the original um, rhythm track at first. And I just thought, I remember calling Phil saying, I'm playing something quite proggy on this. And it's quite pompous and um, it works really well with the vocal track. But I want, you know, I think we both agreed we wanted it to be the last track on the album. And I said, we've done all the fireworks. We don't need one more drum fill. We don't need one more anything. We just need yeah. to let the album go. And um, so I re-recorded my part with brushes more of a jazz yeah, okay yeah we hear that. overdubbed mm -hmm. the heartbeat right yeah a, that was with my bass drum and he's okay. placed the bass drum with um a roland um bass drum sound but so I've, yeah. i love that it comes full circle though with the heartbeat because that's the same as how canterbury started so and it, it brings the entire album full <laughs> circle but that worked so well even if it was yeah. an accident like i never yeah, would totally meant like, that whoa that's genius <laughs> They totally yeah, yeah. like wound up the album at like the way it started. How could they have done that? Like, yeah, it's. I yeah, that was the plan all along, actually. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, it's meticulously just... mapped out. Yeah, obviously. The song was obviously yeah. done two two years earlier, and and okay. then and then we just gave it that slightly more mellow feel, which I really like. I'm really glad we did it. So yeah. when we did the um, CD release, we thought, well, it'd be nice to to use that track with Harriet singing because it's a beautiful vocal mm -hmm. yeah. and um, so probably against Matt's advice uh, we stuck it on the CD and um, I'm glad we did because it kind of breaks up the you know it shouldn't be there well really. if you listen to Matt's advice you wouldn't have CDs anyway so no <laughs> that is very true <laughs> we really did not want to do a CD run right. and we had to say look he wanted it to be very very rare you know and you know the 200 run was his idea and it was a great idea it was really good so we'd love to press some more vinyl really but it it's so expensive to do yeah. you know so we'd we'd have to raise thousand quid and then hope we sell them you know yeah so you know i'm glad it the extra track doesn't go on the album because it kind of spoils I, I don't like extra tracks on cds really myself you know i've got a few albums that i know really well i've got um heroes by bowie and i've got a cd version and it's got all the demos at the end which is really interesting but it feels like you know the album ends and then there's all these yeah, other tracks. it should right. be a second disc but I this so. one this one though is just i mean it's it's crazy how different the two of them sound and it i don't know if it changes my perspective now knowing that the one with the vocals was the first one the album version is it's just very mellow and it just but the harriet's version with her vocals as soon as her vocals kick in every time i hear it it gives me goosebumps yeah and you know with the album version being very dreamlike and atmospheric like i think this is the most atmospheric song on the album but her the vocal version is so powerful and it just adds like so much life to it even though i think both versions are amazing in their own right i her version is just yeah. i i told phil when we talked to him and i i still maintain that it, to me it sounds this one sounds like 
a movie score and specifically i see opening credits for like a james bond movie just because oh yes please yes come on no no let's make that <laughs> I'll happen. put that in the universe for you but uh <laughs> yeah it's really great oh yeah I, I'm, I'm really pleased with it actually and it's perfect ending to the album it just feels yeah. that's the perfect length of album as well i think mm -hmm. I don't know, was it 38 minutes or 40 minutes i mean i don't like overly long albums because i don't care how good they are by the by the end of it you've just had enough it doesn't matter what it is right so, although I'm i am fond good. of the occasional double album it is 49 minutes and 28 seconds with really? the vocal version oh with mm -hmm. the, yes yes with enough. the vocal yeah so more like probably 42 43 without hopefully you know at 40 odd minutes sometimes you just think oh i'll just play that again but when mm -hmm. it's 60 yes. minutes, you think i'm glad that stopped i need to listen to something else yeah if it gets too long sometimes it makes your ears feel like they're gonna start to bleed and then you're like i need a break but this one really is it's it this one leaves you wanting more which is really great and that's hard to get i think from an instrumental album but the sad I, I thing want is more. Looking, looking at spotify stats we're back to our conversation about cherry picking songs mm -hmm. the plays on velvet black are a quarter of what the first tracks are hmm. yeah, which is crazy to me. even the vocal version i'm not sure about that one i'll have to check with phil but yeah i mean it's really disappointing sometimes on albums where you you sequence it and you put the beautiful track to finish and no one gets there yeah there's no excuse on this one either it's away. It's like, no, oh, no. not too long you can't put it first it'd be crazy yeah so you have to just trust that some people will will listen absolutely the people who get it will get it yeah that wraps up Ooh. our breakdown of Milkbone. so that was awesome i don't think we could have done that nearly as succinctly without your input james so thank you <laughs> so edit much that down a bit so we wanted to ask you about your more current projects like the deep state which is super interesting project i have your broken pieces album oh. that came out oh. um Rim. <laughs> so deep state is comprised of yourself and ralph cardell i listened to misinformation highway part one and two and it's wow. really cool it's very proggy and experimental and even though it's all instrumental this is one like you were talking about before that it really does tell a story especially when you look at the track listings you're like okay okay yeah i see where this is going it, the intensity of it when it, it gets darker and darker culminating with the actual apocalypse and if i understood the timeline of when this was released was the zombie apocalypse concept album after this one yes it was yeah okay so the dead arising was the title of that one and that one's a full instrumental apart from breaking news briefs that come through about the events of unfolding of an actual zombie apocalypse and there's also yeah. a really impressive graphic novel that goes with it which is amazing but both of those albums misinformation highway and the dead arising seem to be really tied to current political climate and covid and then your new album is broken pieces which where you're joined by michelle jones as a vocalist and that one's like more traditional the music's very um, atmospheric, but Michelle really adds her beautiful, soulful vocals to it. And I know this was like a personal album for her. Yeah. So how did that all come about? Because you've got the two that are like political and very different. And then you've got Broken Pieces, which is not mainstream by any means, but like more of a traditional song structure type thing. Yeah, well, Ralph and I have known each other since uh, 1995 and, and Michelle, actually, we did uh, quite funny to think of it now, a West End show called the official tribute to the Blues Brothers. Oh, cool. <laughs> and um, 
it was a great gig to get because we were all very young. I must have been 26 or something. I can't believe I was 26 once. Um, <laughs> and we got this gig where we toured around Europe and the UK for a year and um, playing the Blues Brothers stuff. It was great. It was really good. We were playing to 2,000 people a night. We were like rock stars. We would turn up in town and there would be people wanting our autographs. I mean, come on, we're in a show. Awesome. <laughs> That's sure. Cool. Our autographs. <laughs> anyway, we did that and, and we stayed in touch over the years. And we did a band after it called Wonderlust that we nearly made it in the late 90s. You know, it was close, it was close. Record companies, interest, and then blah. Oh, yeah. Not quite there. So 20 odd years later, lockdown, Ralph calls me, let's do some music. Oh, okay. I haven't spoken to you in 10 years, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we like brothers though anyway, you know, we just, and um, so we said, right, we want to make it as progressive as possible. And there's loads of crazy stuff happening in lockdown. So we wanted to base it on this misinformation thing that's going on. And so that's how those albums happened. And we work really fast hard and fast so actually while i was recording milkbone i was also recording with ralph and I, it was crazy i was getting messages from matt and phil and ralph and ah, lots <laughs> of stuff happening it was really good because i was in lockdown right so it kept yeah. me very sane um so yeah we we did all the instrumental stuff and we'd done quite a lot of stuff we did the zombie thing we originally based it on night of the living dead okay we had sound clips from it and we thought we had permission to use them and we didn't oh no relatives of one of the dead actors said hey we've got the rights to the voice you better stop like, oh come on some people said they can't do that they really can't do that and we thought i said i don't want to get into litigation yeah you know, so. yeah absolutely not worth it and we got a voiceover guy changed the plot then the graphic novel happened with a guy called phil jolly amazing artist so what by the time we'd done all that we thought we needed a vocalist we've done a ton of instrumental music i've done milkbone i think i haven't got another drum fill in me i don't know what to play can we have a voice please so michelle comes back and um and she's had quite a journey as well with breast cancer and um her life has been quite a challenge at times she has a great life as well she's got great kids so then broken pieces happened when you see that look on my face don't you take it Yeah, I'm, we're all so proud of it. And we got a deal with a label called High Wire Records, mm -hmm. which I'll talk about again in a second. So um, yeah, Deep State, as you can tell by the name, you know, yeah. we were we were very affected by some of the stories coming out of various places in the world and everyone's acceptance of utter 
crazy things. But I'd, we don't want it to be preachy. So we just want to kind of, I said to Ralph, you know, we, we can't tell these people their role. That doesn't work. No. <laughs> what we can do is just highlight it with our music. Just mm -hmm. It's a kind of passive commentary. Right. You know, the, the harder you push them, the harder they push back. Yeah. yeah. Make it kind of allegorical. It's it's sad. I mean, yeah, me in Florida, Courtney in Texas, you know, both yes. of our states handled things very differently than your country did, the rest of our country did. And, you know, dealing with that nightmare, it's just, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it's, you're right. You can't argue. It's, it doesn't make any difference. It makes things worse. So you just sit there and you're like, okay, I, I don't know what to do with this, you know, but I like that you had an outlet to music yeah. for music. Uh, so I've got a couple of questions about your newest project, Killer Star, and I will combine a few of them. So this is a project with Rob Fleming. Uh, there is an album release and a launch show scheduled, I believe, March of next year. And I know that we have pre-ordered, I pre-ordered the gold oh. vinyl, which I'm really excited to I get. Did it's too. actually going to come out right before my birthday. One. So that was my, oh yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I love the I love cover that. art on that. I love too. that album art. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have a look. So cool. The gold vinyl. Gold one. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh -huh. I love it. It's like gold lame. Uh -huh. I also very that's much great. appreciate that Highwire Records has free shipping to the US. So Ah uh, yeah. yes. Yeah, they have <laughs> some deep connections there. Note to acid jazz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did the project come about? How did you connect with so many of David Bowie's former collaborators for Killer Star? And what else can you tell us about the new album? Well, I have no idea how this happened. It's absolutely <laughs> insane, isn't it? I still can't believe it myself. I'm holding it, looking at these names, thinking, wow. So Rob is an old friend of mine, and um, he sent me a song, and he said, play some drums. I want it to be a kind of rock thing. Uh, okay, I played him some drums, and then we didn't speak for six months. He then sent another song and said, I'm about to sign a singer called M. Griner, and she used to be Bowie's backing vocalist back in the early 2000s. I'm like, wow, yeah, I think I might have seen her with Bowie. Oh, fantastic. That's so exciting. And he said, maybe we could get her to do BVs on one of the songs I'm writing. It's like, yes, yes, you really must. She's incredible. So um, he wrote another song. I did some drums, sent it to M. She, it came back with these layered vocals, harmonies, hooks. You can see why she... David Bowie used her. She, you know, world-class vocalist. And then we said, can you introduce us to anyone else? This is all completely accidental. So then we, we got hold of um, Mike Garson, the piano player. Who, you know, he started with David on the Ziggy Stardust tour and he did the amazing Aladdin Sane solo. If you, if you don't know the Aladdin Sane solo, check it out. It's the most avant-garde, brilliant piece of work. I know that in this house, we're obsessed with it and we always talk oh. about it. It's one of the great moments. And my partner, Julie, is a piano player. So we always play mm. it. And, oh my God, listen to this piano. How does he? And then he's sending us a track, his piano. Because we had him, we then got Earl Slick, who started with Bowie on Station to Station and also worked with John Lennon. Wow, uh, wow, so cool. And then Gayland Dorsey plays bass, one of the best bass players in the world. And so we were writing songs or Rob was writing the songs. I was contributing drums and some ideas. And um, so just track by track, we were then getting more of these people involved. And it was complete. Imagine if we had a master plan. Yes, we're going to do an album <laughs> and we're going to get the finest musicians in the world to play on it. And they're all going to be David Bowie's musicians. You couldn't plan this. It's no, just, that's right. amazing. I think and, we assumed yeah. that you had, but just yeah, so well, we did you assume know, that you had. We're completely unknown to them. You know, they, these are kind of A list, double A listers. You know, they're the 
very top musicians and, and me and Rob are, you know, working musicians, you know, we can play and we've got stuff to do, but we're not known in, in those circles. So it's incredible how this happened, but the musicians loved the music. And um, Earl said to Rob, actually, Earl's become a good friend of Rob's now, which is amazing, that he loves that it's new music. He's not having to play Rebel Rebel in a tribute. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I'm done with that. Did it for a few years and it was great to recognise David, but now there's new new music to be made. So um Earl really got on side and he started giving us I mean, I think we've got forty tracks of guitars on one one song. Oh my gosh. Wow. Harmonised and there's different parts and different versions of the same parts. It's absolutely incredible. So then we get the Manic Street Preachers engineer and producer, Erringer, to um, to produce it. Uh, well, we produced it, he engineered it. And it's incredible what he did. growing and um, oh yeah we got it's... Tim Lefebvre on bass Donnie McCaslin on sax from the Black Star album oh, and they were delighted really because they'd never played with the other band oh wow they were the later band that's really cool so, I think Tim we met Tim at a gig in London and he said oh you know that the other band is another set of people you know these are they're the the big guys and we are the new guys and yeah. so they were delighted to be able to play with Mike Garston and Earl Slick. And just like Milkbone, it was all done separately. Everyone sent their stuff in. And our only advice to these guys was play whatever you think works. Nice. And they like, oh, really? Okay. And of course, because they're all world-class musicians, this stuff came back. And I'm, I'm sitting in this room listening to it thinking, I can't believe what I'm hearing. It's so exciting. It's just... And then we got, in the end, we got Mark Platty, who's Bowie's producer and guitar player. He produced the oh, wow. album, which is one of my favourite albums. And he also produced some Cure albums. And I looked at his CV, actually, uh, and he's done a Prince track. Cool. He's got a bit of Prince. It's like, yeah. oh, my God. So we've got some really good guys. And then we get uh, Bowie's photographer, um, Jimmy, um, Jimmy King, who did all these... Uh, these portraits oh, uh, we've seen a few of those already so yeah. um it's it's going to be quite a big release i think um it's going to be huge yeah that's really exciting it, it really I mean, it's all accidental you know none of it me and rob are just normal 
guys just trying to write songs and work together and we're both you know we're just laughing each mm. new per- you, you, rob a message you never guess what what <laughs> oh slick's just contacting me. oh my god <laughs> no i don't believe it so um it's like christmas has come many times over that's so cool yeah and response has been good so far you know some industry people are getting it now um, yeah oh good it's been reviewed by some pretty big outlets already the first single yeah and they've all been glowing right yeah yeah Yeah. because you don't know when you're working with the legacy of bowie you have to be very careful and very respectful because we're not trying to be bowie or Mm -hmm. i don't want to trade off bowie's name but this all happened completely accidentally that's um, really cool yeah look forward to that coming out i can't wait very excited (laughs) so the the first single should have known better is out already um the second single will be out by the time this comes out this one is actually quite probably the new single I, i can't wait to see what people think of it ready for some listener questions oh yes go for it okay rich from worcestershire asked which of matt's albums or tracks was your favorite to record and why for me that it was the hardest one night terrors that was a a real challenge to learn it and to perform it and to get it down so and i'm so pleased with it it's um it's a great piece of music and when we did the tour he opened with it every night <laughs> <laughs> normally a song like that you put near the end when everyone's warmed up right. so you go on cold and play that it was uh that was good but yeah night terrors that's a good one that's uh that yeah. was a triumph yeah. sarah from detroit asked how did you get started drumming when did you know this was what you wanted to do professionally uh i was very late i was about 18 um hmm. much later than normal people um, i'd always liked it you know i focused on it musically but then i started and by the time i was 23 24 i thought hang on i was in terrible jobs you know usual rubbish jobs thinking is this my life am i going to be standing here in five years doing this and then i managed to get good enough to get this west end show with ralph and michelle in fact the same month i auditioned for the west end show i also auditioned for the cure and i got down to the last few oh um, wow which was very exciting i had to go and do a video interview um audition where the new cure album was played to me without drums 
and I had to then put some drums to it as part of the audition. So that was very exciting for a minute, thinking, my God, am I going to join the Cure? <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got a lovely letter from Robert Smith and the band saying, thanks for what you did. We love your playing. We've decided to go with this other guy. He's still with them now. Jason oh, wow. Fisher, still there. And so it's hard to be too mad. I can't be, yeah. And, and yeah. He was, Robert was so nice. He just said it was just a question of feelings. We felt this guy was, was the one. And, he, you know, he really was. He, it was great. So then, big disappointment. Then I get this West End show, and I think, oh, cool. I'll, I'll go and do that. Strangely enough, where we rehearsed, we shared a lockup with The Cure. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, this was really mind-blowing. So, you know... They say, oh, you can put your drums in here. It was quite a big studio complex in North London. And I went in and then there's all the Cure gear and all their <laughs> set lists and everything. And I just stood there with the set list in my hand thinking, this is so weird. It's like when That's you weird. One, one foot in, you know, Europe, yeah. one foot in Africa or something. It's like, whoa, I'm here <laughs> and I'm here. That would be quite good. But anyway, I'm going to do this. So anyway, I became professional then at about 26 and um okay. i've been penniless ever since <laughs> but it's good i've enjoyed every pretty much every bit of it well that's the most important yeah. part yeah yeah definitely hear your passion come through talking about it it sounds yeah. like you oh, made good, the right good. choice so i've got a little bit of a preface to this anyone who follows your social media or your youtube channel can see that you're a gifted photographer and a wonderful band documentarian with your drum cam videos and your behind the scenes photos. So John from Nuneaton, Warwickshire, apologies, John, if I mangled that, John has enjoyed the lovely travel photos that you post on Facebook and would also like to know how you became the unofficial band historian. <laughs> um, I'm probably the only one that can be bothered to do it. I, I love it. <laughs> I, I love to document everything that we do. And when we started, Matt wasn't so well known. So I, did, I thought, well, I think Matt, I thought Matt was very talented, obviously. And I thought this guy is going to do well. I really must document this and, and get some photos. And, you know, and Matt's not always comfortable with that side of things, you know. So I had to be very respectful um, and not have a camera in his face every five seconds, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. But I really enjoyed doing it and trying to capture the, the life of the band. And then by the end of it, as I knew everyone really well, I started setting up the cameras on stage. And sometimes it's just for me. So I can listen back to the recording and think, don't do that again or whatever. You know, it's instant feedback. Yeah. After the gig, I'm watching the recordings thinking, yeah, that's OK. I can I've still got a gig. Um, but then I thought YouTube kind of blossomed a little bit later. And I thought oh, I could share this stuff. Maybe people will be interested. So, yeah, I've. I've still got multiple camera footage from the 2014 tour that I need to try to put together, but it takes weeks to sync everything up and EQ oh, it. Yeah, but it's, it's great team. stuff. But it's good to have because Matt oh, hasn't yeah. done it now since 2016, is it? You know. Yeah. 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 And I remember him saying, "We will never play these songs again." Oh. And I thought, is he just saying that? You know, it's a bit dramatic. I'm sure we will and we haven't and it's like oh, he really means it he moves on so if we tour again i think it will just be a completely new set he may even use a different band you know he's his mind is elsewhere he's not in the past um, right. so we'll, we'll see what happens you know 
Yeah, so I'm glad someone's looking at those photos and the videos. It's, oh, yeah. Um... <laughs> Your drum cam videos are the best because you have the best seat on the stage. You're like, you right see what center. I see. Right. And so you, you can see Matt see looking everything. over at me. Plus, the best part of them, even though, you know, the drums are the drums are like loud on it because that's where the camera is. But it, the, the video quality is so good for that time. Like people were taking sketchy videos <laughs> on cell phones, but your videos yeah. are really clear and really great. So it's really nice to see that part of it. Clear. I love for you and just such a unique perspective. Yeah. 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 There's only yeah. One great. person with that view and that's me. Right. And, um, and you get to see, you know, there are points when he'll look up and look over at me and I have to decide whether that's encouraging or <laughs> that's, I've done something wrong. And he's actually, he never really does that. But, um, you know, it's interesting. You start to see the interact. I wish I had the whole stage in view, but yeah. the camera's not wide angle enough. If I, if I knew now that we wouldn't do those gigs again, I would have done more cameras. Um, but at least there's something. Yeah. How could you have known? We really do treasure what you do have. Yeah. The last listener question. Multiple listener questions. Multiple listener questions. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of people want to know this. Um, Us as well. We want to know this. Do you have any interesting stories about touring with the Maypoles? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that you're allowed to share with us or you know yes. off air you or can tell ones us that you're not yeah we yeah. can edit anything out <laughs> but give us something we can share at least. Oh, that's really challenging because the whole thing was fun from getting in the tour bus you know like we would sit in this splitter van all facing each other and <laughs> at 10 in the morning and the journeys were great fun you know we'd all be chatting and it felt almost, you know, sad to be arriving at the venue. It's like, oh, well, we've got to stop talking now. And, you know, here we are at the venue again. But, you know, it, we went out and we had fun. There was never any egos. Everyone was good to work with. I don't think there was a crossword with anyone on any of the tours. I can't remember any bad feelings at all, actually. So, yeah, I mean, it was all just good fun, working hard. You know, we took the gigs so seriously. We wanted them to be so great because at the beginning we were trying to prove, I think Matt was trying to establish himself as a musician and not right. a comedian or a, an actor comedian. And that was, that was tough to break out of that with all the people shouting things, you know, the quotes and things. Yeah, it's just so funny. You can hear that on some of the videos too, unfortunately. Mm. Just terrible. I used to shudder a bit thinking is he going to go is he going to get cross now because i think he might and you know you sometimes look round at me like and then not react but i don't know people feel they have this right to be part of the show and you know you're not part of the show just you're there to enjoy what he does Mm -hmm. right why do you have to be heard you know it's not part of the deal and but it got better towards the end and people started turning up just for the music and uh, things changed. But I don't think there's any crazy stories apart from we went out a lot. We partied a lot. We often didn't party a lot because we felt tired and it's like the gig comes first. So right. it's like we would say tonight we go straight back to the hotel. We have a drink in the bar and that was it. And then after three nights of that, it's like, right, we're going out. We're going out. <laughs> Everyone's going out. Um, and 
I do remember actually Matt once in Manchester, um, there was a piano in the bar and um, he started playing the piano and it was all out of tune. And he said very loudly, someone sent, get a piano from London. And that is not the thing to say in Manchester, um, to ask for something <laughs> in London. And the pub just went deadly quiet. <laughs> and I thought, we're all in trouble here. We're in Manchester and they don't like London in Manchester very much. That's funny. He was joking, but um, yeah, eventually the volume of the pub went back up again and it was like, oh, oh God. So, <laughs> I can picture uh, that in my head, like record scratch, everybody's silent. <laughs> it was. Sent to London for a piano. That's <sighs> funny. That's it the only one like, I can think of off the top of my head. Sound like you were the utmost professionals. Yeah. Is there a favorite memory that stands out or does it all just kind of blur into the Albert Hall? Albert yeah. Hall. That's I think I think that's what Phil said too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he did. I must admit, all right, I'll I'll I must admit I lied to Matt on that gig because we were we were due on at a crazy time, like seven twenty seven. And <laughs> we were by the side of the stage at seven twenty five, waiting to go on. Matt was pacing around and he said to me are you nervous? And he clearly was nervous. And I was not nervous. I was more like terrified. Uh, <laughs> and I lied to him. I lied. I said, No, I'm not nervous. I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to this. And he said, Good. Because if you're okay, we'll all be okay. Oh, that's Aww. nice. And that's probably exactly what he needed to hear at that. At that, that was it. Yes. Look after the talent, you know, and then yeah. I had to then, and that kind of pretending you're okay is really good when you're not okay. Because you yeah. pretend enough, you can play the part of not being terrified. Yeah. So I just strode out to the drum kit and thought, just look really positive, like, right, <laughs> out the band in. It's just another Ooh. gig. <laughs> As I walked to the kit, I had these terrible thoughts of, who had played there on that spot and it flat it was like that kind of thing where before you die your life flashes before you it was like that i was thinking ringo 1963 john bonham 1969 Jimi hendrix 1969 i just thought what are you thinking about that for <laughs> i thought i wonder if Seriously. my drum kit is where mitch mitchell's drum kit was maybe it was stop thinking about that <laughs> to stop <laughs> Stop thinking, and that was all in the space of me just walking to the kit where my yeah. legs work properly, and I forgot how to walk. Oh no! You know, like, and did it turn walk? out how you thought it would? Like, was it good? We all played so well. The sound was great. Yeah. The audience were great, and Stephen Wilson, who we were supporting, you know, one of the great musicians, his band, some of the greatest players of all time, was standing in the wings, kind mm. of smiling and waving at us, <laughs> and. That was kind of great and kind of terrifying because yeah. there's the, the top people here and they're watching us. <laughs> it was so strange. But I walked off stage and Stephen Wilson just said to me in the corridor, nice gig, man. I thought, that's, that's good. it. That's, that's it. Made it. Really nice. And, you know, so that, I'd love to do it again one day. It was, if you live in the UK, maybe it's like playing Carnegie Hall. Or, yeah. Band mm -hmm. Old Opry or whatever, you know, right. one of those so I can die happy now. That's awesome. And your name is next to people, other people that have played there. So Ringo Starr, James Edge, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, they'll be thinking that the next band that go on. Yeah, I think, think they will. The next person that comes on is like James Sedge played here, <laughs> right here. You never know. Yeah. Killer star. Killer star. Yeah. Man. Yeah. 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 You never know. Well, we've got the Hundred Club on the sixteenth of March. Yes. We've got Earl mm-hmm. playing and Mark Platty and M Griner playing. Um, so that'll be good. Um, Are there any plans for a tour <clears throat> with Killer Star, or is that wait you know and see? What? With with people of that caliber. It's very hard to get them in one place. Uh, I yeah. can't believe we've got who we've got because everyone else is on tour. Otherwise, they said, oh, we'd love to come and do it. But I'm in Japan and I'm here. And... But we might do. If the album does well, who knows? You yeah, know, there could be opportunities. You know, a lot of the band are based in New York. So we're thinking maybe we could do a launch party in New York. Oh, hey, that's yes. closer. There you go. That's only a two-hour flight. <laughs> Well, hey, Austin, Texas is the live music capital of the world. Just that putting is, that yeah. out there. So everyone tells me, yeah, it's um, whenever I, I used to go to New Orleans a lot, and um, everyone said, "You think it's good here? Go to Texas. It's even better." Yeah, so different maybe, vibe. Maybe one day, but we might. So we might do it. We'll just see what happens. If if there's enough interest, me and Rob would love to do it. Well, we will keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. Do we have anything? Oh, else? thanks, guys. Thanks for uh, listening to me droning on so long. Thank you so much for oh. being here. Seriously, Amazing. thank you. It's been such an honor to be able to go through the album with you. Thank you for making time for us. As always, you can catch us at Obsessed Obscure on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and that hip new app all the kids are talking about, TikTok. Also, we've created a one-stop link in bio page, which we keep up to date with links to purchase current album or pre-sales, and live show ticket links. So anything we've talked about today or on previous episodes, can be easily accessed right from the link in bio. I know we can't wait to hear what everyone thought of this album, so please share your thoughts with us. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. You and me and the BBC.